1: Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host Adam Schick. If this season of Florida basketball was a roller coaster, Saturday saw the Gators hit the brake run on their 100th ride. Much like football, basketball's year came to an end against Michigan, albeit with a different result. On today's show, we'll be joined by FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to put a wrap on this season and look to the future, break down the latest news from spring football, discuss some tough sledding on the diamond, and contemplate the worst coaching fits of all time in the PAT. Then, rising senior defensive lineman Jabari Zuniga stops by to chat about spring practice, the remarkably late start to his football career, and his goals for his final year. But first, while there's always disappointment when any campaign comes to an end, Mike White's team certainly came a long way considering the number of low points they hit throughout the year. So to open our roundtable, we asked Chris to chart the final stretch, Beginning with the home loss to Georgia just a few weeks ago, that many thought would keep them out of the tournament entirely.
0: When they lost that game, it, everything seemed um, like it was going to spiral out of control. Because sure enough, they lost to LSU a couple of days later at home in senior night, and then lost to Kentucky. And that was a you know a three-game losing streak to exit the regular season. Um, but obviously, they salvaged things with the SEC tournament. Really good performance there. Won an NSA tournament game. They became one of 10 teams uh, nationally that won at least one NSA tournament game the last three seasons. There's some really good teams in there, as you can imagine, in those 10. And then, obviously, it came up against a, a, a much better team in Michigan. 10th right team in the country. Um, team that you know was, was right there playing for the Big Ten Championship um, a week earlier. Uh, so, just to look at a season in an in a overall brushstroke, you know, 2016, it's a lot of losses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having said that, that's 36 games. 12 of them came against teams that are in the Sweet 16 right now. Wow. A third of their schedule came against teams that are still playing basketball. Hmm. Um, uh, you think of that, they played by far the hardest SEC schedule when you think about two games each against Kentucky, Tennessee, and Auburn, and three games against LSU. Uh, they played Michigan State, and they played Michigan played florida state and some of those games they should have won no doubt about that and just the overall inconsistency of the team relative to what they were able to do on offense when you just kind of step back and look at it objectively the bulk of the season when you talk about offense it's it's a team that basically is playing four on five you can't run stuff through the post uh with Kavarius hayes um now he was played pretty damn well offensively late in the season, but he's not a facilitator down there, Adam. He's mm. a guy who's like uh, get the ball into him. Maybe he can make something uh, work with a with a little jump hook or something like that. And we saw a little bit of that. He made a couple elbow jumpers the last couple of weeks, you know, something we hadn't seen. But I mean, he's not a guy you get the ball into. He's get, he's going to find cutters and stuff like that. They, they they didn't have a guy like that, so um, that's why Mike White decided to slow the slow the game down, uh, play it at a, at a pace that. Probably uh, more benefited um, Andrew Nemhard, a uh, true freshman who started 36 games at point guard, which is really an incredible thing. Ended up with the second most assists ever for a true freshman playing point guard at Florida. Hmm. Um, inconsistent scoring when you from Kayvon Allen. Uh, inexplicable uh, first two-thirds of the season from Jalen Hudson. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy who you went into the season thinking, this guy's probably going to score 16 points a game for this team and ends up scoring 10, but through half the season was averaging less than six. Kayvon Allen was a guy who you know just disappears sometimes, and which was kind of the story of the Florida offense. Now you take that to uh, into the tournament, played really really good for I'd say 30 minutes against Nevada. Then Nevada does some things that that complicated the game for Florida in terms of you know went into a a run and jump press that kind of got Florida out of whack. Then went into one of those scoring droughts. Uh, There was some bickering on the sidelines, a little bit of that going on, and you know they righted it. Uh, They found a way to still win the game and beat a team that was ranked in the top 10 basically for the entire season. Uh, That was a feel-good moment for this team, just like the LSU wins uh, earlier in the year were. But then ultimately, you run up against a Michigan team. uh, As good as Florida has been on defense all season, Michigan's one of the best, maybe the top defense in the country. They basically face-guarded perimeter guys and said, we dare you to drive because we have a a 7-foot-1 Redwood sitting down here ready to uh, take you on. And, uh, it's just kind of how, how things worked out at the end. Um, 14 point run over the late first half, of beginning of the second half to Florida exits the NCAA tournament. Final games for Kavarius Hayes, Kayvon Allen, and Jalen Hudson. I, I give a great shout out to Kavarius Hayes, who I think was the really the linchpin inside the locker room and turning things around for this team where it was at 12 and 11 or where it was after the Georgia game. Just kind of, um, holding everyone together keeping the chemistry um, light and in a good place in the locker room and really being the guy like Mike White, even said it a couple times in the last couple weeks, Adam, he said that he has, I turned things over to Kabari Hayes sometimes because he became the voice in the locker room. Sometimes when things are going up and down, players don't necessarily want to hear the coach talk all the time. They will listen to a, a respected teammate. Certainly that's what Kavaris Hayes is. Kayvon Allen leaves as the number six score in school history with 1723 points. Jalen Hudson will leave as the number two uh, in terms of points that transferred to Florida. Only, I think only behind Dorian Finney-Smith. So both came from Virginia Tech. Also, mm-hmm. so uh, now you turn to next season. You kind of salute this team. You know, you look back a little bit and look at missed opportunities, but look at where they ended up. They, they ended up in the tournament that everyone wants to finish their season in. Uh, do you want? Is is 2016 good enough? Is round of 32 good enough? No, nobody wants that but uh, there's some good teams in the history of the university of Florida that didn't make it out of the first weekend as well. Florida's that's been Florida's case the last two seasons. I mean, Billy Donovan from 2001 to 2005 didn't make it out of the first weekend. Wow. So, uh, uh, Florida is trending upward. I think two years ago. Yeah. They're in the sweet 16 or assuming they lead eight finished a few possessions away from having a chance to play in the final four. But I think things are, are, are in a good place right now. And, um, Mike White has a plan for what he wants to do with this team as he moves on. Uh, the foundation of this team, obviously, are these three freshmen that will become sophomores next year. And there's a second foundation of freshmen coming in, obviously. Uh, uh, that'll be here next fall. That is a re- recruiting class that just about every service has as one of the top three to five uh, classes in the country. So you got that three really good sophomores, three really good freshmen coming in. That's a pretty good uh, uh, foundation from which to build, and there may be other players uh, that'll be here that we don't know about
1: also. As far as those rising sophomores that you just mentioned, I'm curious with each one of those where you think they can improve the most this offseason and where they really need to improve the most to be that foundation that the program is built on.
0: I think the most impressive thing, Adam, about what Andrew Nemhard did over the course of his season, and this is a guy, I think he led the team in minutes played, too. I mean, he, he was on the court basically the whole season. His offense wasn't very good at the beginning of the year, and it got better as the season went on. you don't believe me, ask Trey Waters of LSU. He popped that three-pointer right in his face that basically put the uh, Gators in the NSA tournament. His ability to drive, his ability to read defenses, his ability to finish. And certainly his three-point shot got better as the season went on, a lot better. And uh, he gets credit for that because he was a fixture after practice, also working with Mike White on mechanics of his shot. And it it certainly paid off uh, for Florida down the line. One of the things that Nemhart will be able to do, the Gators need to get a post guy in there mm. because he had better post players at Montverde Academy than he had in Florida. And so we haven't even seen some of the stuff that the guy is able to do, some of the, uh, like, lobs. If he gets a center that can do a, a classic pick and roll, Johnny Boone would have been perfect for it. Patrick Young guy would have been perfect for it, someone like that. Then get somebody, someone in the post, uh, Andrew Nemhardt's uh, assist total are going to go up exponentially, I would think um that's one thing that will help Andrew Nembhard Noah Locke uh Noah Locke needs to take care of his hip pointer That dogged him the better half of the second second half of the season he wasn't getting the lift in his shot and he was fighting through stuff this is a tough kid he's going to work a little bit on his conditioning on his body firm up his body somewhat but uh you know he's going to keep working on his shot he's going to keep working to get to become a better player he's got a high high character guy just like Andrew Nembhard is and uh that's uh uh he knows exactly what he has to work on and i i just think he's he's going to be a great player for this program he's going to score an awful lot of points for the gators keontae johnson what he needed to do more than anything else was learn how to play hard all the time and he figured that out that's one of the reasons he got on the floor more that's one of the reasons uh ironically the game that he took over for keystone was the game that keystone blew out his knee and was lost for the season keontae johnson was on the floor he went from i'd say 16 minutes a game to a 26-27 minute game uh, guy, if he stays out of foul trouble, he can really affect games just by being on the floor, getting in the mix for offensive rebounds, defensive rebounds, tips. You know, he'll work on his shot. He'll work on finishing maybe a little bit better. Work on his free throws a little better. It's remarkable. He was 71% from the free throw line for the season, and then in the SEC tournament, he went one for ten. Hmm. And uh, uh, and having said that. He he didn't miss any in the game that they lost, so he didn't hurt them from the free throw line. But I'm sure that's something that he'll point a finger at. But uh, those are three, obviously, really, really good players. It's funny, this is, you know, at Kentucky, you look at great freshmen, and you're not asking me what are they going to do to get better because they're gone. Right. Okay. Yeah. So these are three really good freshmen who are going to be here next year. And that's obviously uh, something to, For Florida fans to be excited about, especially on top of the new freshmen that are going to be on their way here.
1: And that's the last component of this I was going to ask you about. I think it's been highly publicized that Florida's got two McDonald's All-Americans coming in, which is a pretty rare thing in Gainesville. So tell us about these freshmen and specifically, do they address what I think most people believe is Florida's biggest need, which is having some size inside? I would be hesitant to to just say yes to that,
0: actually, because you're talking, let's three guys. Scotty Lewis from New Jersey is a, is a six six wing, an uh, incredibly athletic wing. Um, uh, anyone who watched the highlights from the McDonald's dunk contest this week saw what he did in that competition. It was it's re- it's freakazoid stuff, but he's also high, 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 high motor player who will get on the court and say, I got that guy. He loves to play defense. He loves to practice. He is the whole package is going to be, I believe he's going to be everything that the headlines are going to say he's going to be. So you have him coming in to play what would be a 2-3, a probably some four position player. Uh, Trey Mann, local kid who ended up going to the Villages, is a, a volume shooter, volume scorer, but he's going to give Florida something they haven't had in the last two years as a true backup or true second point guard. He's noted as a scorer, but has really improved his ball handling and he's he's said publicly that's something he really wants to improve on over the course of the summer. Now you got two guys in addition to Andrew Nemar, you got who needs to go get a breather. You're not turning things over like the last two years with Chioza and with Andrew to Kayvon Allen, who's just not a natural point guard. He's not naturally assertive enough to to be that kind of guy, a, a facilitator like that. Mm-hmm. But you do also have a guy who has uh, a ridiculous range come in and he can drive and get his own shot. So, okay. Now we got two guys like that. Now you bring in Omar Payne, who's a six, nine post player, very long, athletic, uh, elite shot blocker. I'm not sure he's the definitive five guy that, that maybe we're talking about. And maybe not some guy who can come in and be that guy right away. I think whoever that five player is going to be, um, it's probably somebody the floor is going to go out and find on the grad transfer market, an experienced player who is looking to go somewhere and, and come in and play right away who's a finished product. That's what they need.
1: So talking about next season, obviously the freshmen becoming sophomores, that's a big part of the story. Another part of it is guys that are leaving. And Chris, you talked about maybe some grad transfers coming in to help the Gators, but they're going to have some more space now because they have a few guys that already announced that they're leaving the program pretty quickly after this run ended.
0: Yeah, Monday was the day for exit meetings and you know one on ones uh, where the whole staff sits down with with players and they evaluate what guys' roles are um, or roles will be in the program. And um, you know after sitting down and talking to the coaches, uh, Keith Stone and Michael Caru and DeAndre Ballard decided they want to pursue their careers at a different place. So uh, that was quite a that's quite a development when you think about it because you're you, I, I was just talking about. Maybe a grad transfer coming in here and there. But now all of a sudden you have multiple uh, scholarship openings for potential guys to come in. And, uh, you know, how does that impact Florida right now in terms of losing these guys? Well, if you step back and look, Keystone obviously was hurt. Uh, He got hurt in January 19th at Georgia. He suffered a season-ending knee injury. I mean, uh, best-case scenario, Adam – he could return and be ready to play perhaps in December, maybe in January. And by that time, maybe he's looking at things saying, uh, I think there's guys that are in and they're going to be, you know, the rotation may be settled by then. Now he's opted to grad transfer. Well, I mean, he I don't know how different his scenario is going to be somewhere else, but he feels that's for him. And he is scheduled to graduate this uh this summer. So obviously we wish him the best of luck. It was a uh, tragic what happened to him and very unfortunate, but um, you know, he's made that decision and he moves on. Um, Michael Caro is a guy who probably played more last season than he did this season. His role. Um, you know, I've talked about this a lot the last uh, few weeks, the rotation for this team really got smaller. And the reason uh, that happened over the course of seasons, because Michael Coru and Deandre Ballard started playing a lot less. And so that left them with the the numbers that they had. And Michael Cora maybe maybe his best shot is to go play at a at a mid major kind of place where he can get more time. And his minutes on the on the floor were just probably not something that he was excited about. And maybe he didn't hear what he wanted to hear in the exit meetings in terms of what his role would be um, next season. With regard to DeAndre Ballard, this is a guy I believe you know earlier in the season he had he was. You know, playing a lot more he was playing uh you know i'd say 16 to 18 minutes a game and then his his time on the floor really was cut back significantly he had some, some problems with defense um you know when when, when you look at guys it, 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 they can score but you also have to prevent guys from scoring and uh, what determines playing time is an element of trust when it comes to the coaching staff and if you look at a guy like the andre ballard he was obviously a talented scorer and but at the same time i think if you broke it down i think he had uh five or six dnp's coach's decision i want to say over the last maybe um eight to nine games so maybe he saw that as writing on the wall too and all these guys have a chance to go to to maybe lower level uh places i imagine keystone may get some feelers out in terms of for uh, for high majors or what have you but uh, again he's uh, i use this with respect okay he's damaged goods because he's dealing with a repaired knee a surgically repaired knee that he just had operated on uh, less than two months ago mm-hmm. so uh, we'll see what their options are but obviously uh, uh we we wish them the best they obviously represented florida in a good way you never heard anything bad about those guys off the floor and you know we want nothing for the best for them but uh it opens up uh, some possibilities for the gators in terms of there's already i believe it's over 400 names already in the grad transfer portal wow or excuse me in the transfer portal the, the grad transfers are the one who can come in and play right away so uh that's the way the college basketball has gone right now. Obviously, Florida has had uh, success bringing in grad transfers. Canyon Berry was the uh, SEC Sixth Man of the Year in his one season here from college at Charleston. And um, uh, Igor Kulichov came in and uh, was the second leading scorer on the team uh, a year ago from Rice. You can get good players from mid-major programs who can come out have instant impact on teams. And obviously you can get players from high major programs that work for Kentucky. They're still playing with Reed Travis, who came from Stanford, a big part of uh, of their success
1: this season. And I'm sure we'll find out about those in the coming weeks and months. We'll talk about them as they develop. Moving our attention off of the uh, the hardwood and, and onto the grass, let's talk a little spring football because obviously, guys, that's going to take the focus now that basketball's run is over. Uh, Scott, what's the latest from spring ball, at least in the last week, that, that you've seen?
2: You know, they're almost to the middle point of uh, camp, Adam, and uh, not a lot of news uh, really out of camp. Uh, the biggest news probably so far was earlier this week, Antonius Clayton, a guy who arrived at Florida with a lot of promise back in 2016. He announced he's uh, transferring, which wasn't a surprise, really, but it was kind of in the timing because, you know, he participated in the first five practices of camp. And even last week, uh, you know, everybody was asking him about transferring, but he said, you know, he's got a new young son, his girlfriend's a student and about to graduate. He just felt it was important to try to finish what he started and get that one big year at Florida, kind of like Kai Polite did last year. Uh, those two guys came in together. Their careers have taken different paths. So, Polite's an NFL draft, and Clayton has now uh, decided to transfer to see if uh, an opportunity arises out there where he can get on the field. He, uh, despite being a top recruit that year, uh, the guy only uh, you know had 11 tackles in three seasons, and obviously redshirted last year uh, to try to uh, you know grasp the defense that Todd Grantham installed and and move to that buck position. And it looked like he was going to have a maybe a chance to go into spring in a major role there. But then, you know, they, they picked up John Grignard from Louisville as a grad transfer, and he's going to take in most of the reps. And then with Jeremiah Moon, a guy who factors there in the fall, he's been out this spring. So you just thought, okay, Clayton's this is a shot. But they're also playing a lot of young guys there. David Reese, the uh, redshirt freshman who didn't play last year, but, you know, same name as the linebacker, but a totally different player. He's getting work there. And I think the coaches have been impressed by him. And, you know, you got to believe a player like Clayton, um, he's probably, you know, getting some of those hints. And maybe he could still produce, but sometimes it's best just to go somewhere else and try to see if new scenery uh, leads to production. And I think that's what he's going to do. Because, you know, you look at him and he looks the part, guys, but we haven't seen it on the field. And uh, until he does that, obviously, he's just going to be a guy that we talked about as a great prospect. who who didn't uh, fill out the potential
1: at Florida. As far as the guys that are still on the field competing for the Gators, Scott, I know there's a scrimmage coming up this week. So what are the coaches going to be looking for out of that first scrimmage of the spring?
2: You know, I think the heavy emphasis, as always, this time of year is development of guys who didn't play much last year. And of course, the nine new guys who enrolled mid-year. Have they, where have they progressed at midpoint of camp to see where they may fit in come fall? I got to believe a, a huge focus of the scrimmage will be the offensive line. Other than Nick Buchanan up there at center, that's the only returning starter. You got Brett Heggy with some experience, but has always been in, injury. He's going to, you know, get a lot of time. Noah Banks, Stone Forsythe, or a couple other guys who have been working on the, the first team, but they don't have a, enough veterans to where they could pencil out a for certain starting lineup going into the opener. So you're going to get a lot of looks for those, uh, those young offensive linemen, guys like, Christopher Blige and Ethan White, Kingsley Klein, another freshman who I'm going to have to practice on that pronunciation. <laughs> but uh, without question, John Hemesty last week, he, he kind of hinted at what a challenge this spring has been. He said he knows he's going to have a few more gray hairs by the end of camp. And Dan Mullen said, you know, of all the position groups, we know offensive line is not going to be anywhere near finalized at the end of camp. So I really just think it's a, it's a great chance to test those guys and audition them in different roles, uh, see who's ahead of each other in, in development. And uh, if you're one of those uh, offensive linemen, you gotta love a situation like this because playing time is hanging right there in front of you if you can grab it. And I don't think that they care if it's a true freshman, a, a redshirt freshman who didn't play last year, or a veteran who's kind of uh, you know just hasn't done much in his time on the roster yet. So that's one area, Adam. I think the skill offense players, I mean, you know, well, it will always be interesting to see what Emory Jones does, uh, how he's progressed. Uh, Felipe Franks, so, you know, he's looked good through the first part of camp. I don't think there's a lot of, uh, of concern there with anything we've seen from him. Uh, the receivers have done well. Tight ends a position that they'll keep an eye on. Uh, Lucas Kroll, uh, before he banged up his shoulder in camp, he made some nice plays. Dan Mullins talked about how he's a guy that they're going to need to make plays during the season because he really fits into what Mullen likes to do offensively with the tight end. And we saw a glimpse of that last year. But now with Siante Lewis and, and Morrill Stevens and R.J. Raymond going, uh, Lucas Kroll's a guy who clearly is going to have a bigger role in 2019. He shipped over to defense. I think that bug position we just talked about in regards to Antonio's Clay leaving, I think there's still a lot of playing time there behind Grignard, uh, with those guys like David Reese, a true freshman, Muhammad Diabate, another true freshman, and um, some other guys down there. Andrew Chatfield's getting a look there. Uh, I think they're just looking at that position. It's such a important position in Todd Grantham's defense because his defense is predicated upon basically causing pressure and getting turnovers in the passing game. And with uh, fumbles, as we saw last year with Ja'Kai Polite leading the nation with six forced fumbles from that position. So uh, that's going to be a heavy emphasis, just seeing what that looks like behind Greenyard, who's the veteran. And from what I've seen, uh, he looks like a veteran. You can tell this guy, even though he missed last season due to a hand injury, he looks healthy, and he looks like a player who knows what he's doing out there and knows uh, Grant's defense. Uh, beyond that, the linebacker position, that you know, b- beside David Reese, uh, LaShawn jo- Joseph departed. So I think they're going to look at Amari Bernie's getting the most looks there uh during camp. And I think as of right now, you probably pencil him in that spot beside uh, Reese. But there's some young guys on there. Uh, you know, Jesse, uh Pierre is another guy who we've seen work on the outside and some inside a true freshman. So, anyway, see, you know, typical spring in that regard. A lot of a lot of unknowns, but also in relation to the past recent history with the Gators. A lot of positions, especially on offense, there's more stability there than we're accustomed to seeing lately. I
1: want to move things over to gymnastics and talk about their performance at the SEC championships. Remember, they won the regular season SEC title, which is something that only recently has been awarded. Uh, but then they have, of course, the actual championship meet, which they came in second at. So that's kind of the, the prelude to what's next, which is NCAAs. Scott, what can you tell us about gymnastics outing in, uh, in New Orleans?
2: They went down to Cajun country, Adam, and uh, I mean the Gators had a great performance. It's just that with about 10,000 fans, uh, most of them LSU fans, LSU uh, won with some, uh, you, know, you could say, home cooking judging, which often happens in gymnastics. Florida's benefited from that, I'm sure, in the past. Uh, I think it cost them at the SEC championships. Uh, they could have easily won that meet. Again, if there was one area that prevented them from, it's the vault. Now they're on the Corvallis, Oregon for the regional. And from there, if if they finish in the top two there, they'll, they'll advance to the finals, which, you know, looking at the bracket there, unless something disastrous happens, you're looking at Florida being in the NCAA championships again. And with the chance to compete, I think it's still Florida, LSU, Oklahoma. UCLA, if you're going to say, okay, who's the four favorites in the nation? Those four schools are in the mix with, uh, I think, Oklahoma the favorite, but all those other schools can take advantage if, if they have an off night. And the I mean, Gators have a great night. Anything could happen, as we've seen in this sport.
1: I want to talk a little baseball, softball. I haven't had a lot of that the last few weeks, but – You know, Scott, we're so used to talking about both of those teams really dominating in in their respective sports in the SEC, but through the first few weeks of league play, both of them are experiencing some unusual struggles.
2: Yeah, and on different ends of the spectrum, I think with the softball team, for them, it's been mostly about hitting. The transfer from Minnesota, Mendel, she's certainly provided the power, but they're going to need help around her. You know, I think it just speaks volumes about the SEC. I mean, we all know it's the toughest softball conference probably in the country now, A lot of these programs have been elevated in recent years with, you know, Florida winning a couple of national titles, Alabama being there, Tennessee's good. You know, I've seen this enough to where you got to believe that they'll start hitting better. And, but as long as Kelly Barnhill is in the circle, they're going to be in most games, but she's going to need help. And then you flip it to baseball and it's kind of the opposite end. The Gators have always had great pitching and their pitching hasn't been so great lately. I mean, you saw what happened up in Vanderbilt, Uh, the Commodores, who, it will not surprise anybody if Vanderbilt wins a national title. Well, they really took it to Florida, and these teams have had some great series in recent years because they've both been national title contenders almost each year in the past decade. But very rarely does one team dominate the other as much as Vanderbilt did Florida this uh, this past weekend. So now the Gators are looking to see if you know Tommy Mace, Jack Leftwich and uh, Tyson Dollar can you know, get back in the groove when Alabama comes to uh, McKeithen Stadium this weekend. Uh, the Gators are 1-5 in the SEC, which is certainly an unusual position for them to be in. But they also have played two of the best teams, and not just the SEC, in the country in those six games, in Mississippi State and, uh, and Vanderbilt. So I think they're going to be okay in the long run, but they're certainly taking some lumps right now. And it'll be interesting to see as, as the season progresses of how these young pitchers respond to really their first adversity because in the last year, these young guys had Brady Sr. and Jackson Coar to carry the load for the first two nights of a weekend series. And now they're having to do it. And it's been painful so far in the first couple SEC series.
1: Moving on to this week's PAT, uh, what happens in the immediate aftermath of the end of the college basketball season in the conference tournaments is you start to see some parting of ways with coaches. And we saw that in the SEC, both with Bryce Drew and Vanderbilt, and also Avery Johnson in Alabama. And I'm kind of intrigued by the Avery Johnson in Alabama, because that's one that even from the get-go, it just didn't seem like it was a fit. It didn't seem like it made sense and ultimately proved that it didn't work out. He only went to the tournament once in four years and and they've they've split up. But I'm curious for you guys, if there are other examples you can think of a maybe a, a high-profile coaching situation that just didn't work and maybe seemed like a weird marriage from the get-go and ultimately went the way that, that most people expected.
0: When you said we were going to talk about this, I thought of V. Spurrier going so, to Redskins at the so time. So did I. So, I, Yeah, then that was pretty easy, but at the same time, you knew he was going to eventually go to the NFL. and I don't know that it would have been so bad of a fit had he gone somewhere else where a general manager would have been in place. And he said this. In fact, I saw a story this week in the Washington Post. They sent a great freelance writer, Eric Adelson, up to Georgia to do a story on Spurrier at at that camp. And uh, I think his quote was something along with, I I didn't do a very good job. He goes, uh, and the GM didn't do a very good job. And the GM was the owner. So who do you think was going to leap? So um, being in a place where he didn't necessarily have to pick the player, somebody with some knowledge would have helped him there. But in terms of the worst fits, I mean, I think Jerry Tarkany, when he went to the Spurs, do you remember that? I mean, that, does that, I think it lasted 18 games. He got in a feud with the owner uh, about he said he needed a better point guard. OK, and this is where how this goes back to full circle. His point guard at the time was Avery Johnson, by the way, <laughs> who ended up winning, who ended up winning an NBA title uh, for that team. But the, to me, the worst fit ever anywhere is Tim Floyd going to the Chicago Bulls. He went there to rebuild the uh, to rebuild that team after Michael Jordan left. I think Pippen stuck around a little bit after that. But I mean, that was an utter disaster. Uh, had such success at Iowa State. And many is. I want to say they at one time they were like five and 40 or something like that. And Michael George playing minor league baseball, calling him Pink Floyd. And and uh, I mean, ultimately, of course, he got fired. And he ends up going to USC and gets implicated in NCAA stuff there. Now he's at UTEP. You talk about a fall from grace for this guy. But, I mean, it just started with a spiral with that. And to me, I don't think that was ever fit because I don't know what Tim Floyd did at Iowa State to to warrant being trusted with – at that time, obviously that was a marquee franchise in the NBA that had just lost the greatest player in history. It was just kind of weird fit from the get-go for me. But I, I don't necessarily think the Avery Johnson thing was that out of line. Uh, but they're going to be some, uh, there's a lot, going to be a lot of college jobs open in the next couple of weeks. There's going to be some, maybe there'll be some things that, uh, that don't look right in this wave of, of hirings coming up.
2: You know, uh, I'll, i I've got one here for you because I remember, I remember getting a call from the editor when I was covering Florida State in Tallahassee. And I'd just been up there not too long ago. And I've been around the Lightning, obviously. And they're like, Hey, Scott, we need you to get, going on a huge takeout on Barry Melrose. He's going to be the new Lightning coach. I'm like, really? Barry Melrose? The same one on TV wearing those (laughs) suits and with the hair? He's been out of coaching for like 20 years. (laughs) He's the new coach. This is a big move. So so I spent all day tracking down people from Barry Melrose's uh, past, talked to his sister, talked to his high school coach, talked to all these people in his small hometown up in Canada, wrote this story that made the uh, A1 section of the Tampa Tribune the next day and I think within two or three weeks, Barry Melrose was gone. <laughs> <laughs> he, his, I can't remember exactly. I think it was like 14 or 15 games that he lasted as head coach. Uh, he it was a classic case where, yeah, Barry Melrose did have some coaching success with the L.A. Kings, took him to the Stanley Cup back in the early 90s. But he also had a guy on that team by the name of Wayne Gretzky, hmm. who who played a big role. And, of course, he got into TV and became this uh colorful personality that really does help uh, sell the National Hockey League on that network, Uh, but it showed an interest to get into coaching. I think the Lightning, after winning that Stanley Cup, and then having to sit down a year due to the lockout, and then, of course, John Tortorella's two-year inning, you couldn't imagine a different personality than John Tortorella and Barry Melrose. I mean, these two guys are like 180s from each other, and uh, it just didn't work out for Melrose for whatever reasons. Uh, So that one sticks out you know, I go back to. I remember when Alabama football hired a guy named Mike Price, who I think, if I get my memory is right, did he come from Washington? Washington,
1: Washington State. State.
2: So not an Alabama guy. and Got there, and if I remember, he had a, he made a cover of Sports Illustrated pretty early in his tenure, and that's not good in the off season. <laughs> it's like making deadspin. That's today's modern
1: version.
2: <laughs> so right. that that's one that did not work. And, Chris, you pointed out you don't think he coached the game,
0: right? I don't think he coached the game. No,
1: no he, yes. I, I promise you didn't. I remember that he did not coach the game. They found out about some uh, – what's the best way to put this? Uh, some extracurricular activities he engaged in that were not becoming of the head coach of Alabama football.
0: No, and with the words Roll Tide coming out of his mouth, I <laughs> So those those two are just
2: a couple that stand out in my mind.
1: So, yeah, as Chris noted, there will be more strange coaching hires coming up. that In a couple years, we'll probably look back and say, hey, remember that? That was a bad idea. What's never a bad idea is checking out Chris and Scott on FloridaGators.com or on Twitter at GatorsScott, at GatorsChris. They will continue to be active even if there is no more basketball going on. Make sure to check out Scott and all of his coverage of spring football. Gentlemen, thank you so much as always. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. The Gators lost a lot of talent from multiple positions in January, and the defensive line was one of the hardest hit. So with leaders like C.C. Jefferson and Ja'Kai Pouyde exiting, Jabari Zuniga is the heir apparent to the throne and, of course, the Chucky doll. We spoke to Jabari about his background and unlikely path to being a college football star, but began by finding out how much different this year's spring camp has been in year two with Dan Mullen. I
3: mean, it's a lot different because like, you know, this time around, you know, everything isn't so new. You know, you know all the plays, you know, it's just a little, little tweaks that you have to go through here and there. But I'm very familiar with the playbook. So, you know, everything is a lot more easier now.
1: And that second year with that staff, I know Coach Grantham talked about that last week as well. What are some of the things you can do kind of at the next level? Now that you've got the base knowledge of that defense down, what are some of those tweaks that you can sprinkle in? Like knowing everything allows you to play a lot faster.
3: You know, it's, it's not really too much thinking because you, you know it's like secondhand. You know, last year when we was coming in, it was, it was fairly new to us. So, you know, we played a little slower because we had to think about it, about it a little too much. But like now we know everything, so we just go out there and play go full, 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 full speed.
1: The team ended last year on, on such a strong note with the FSU win and also what you did in the Peach Bowl. How much juice is that given the guys and the program, and, and how have you seen that carry over to the start of spring ball?
3: Um, that's definitely given us a lot of juice. You know, uh, we carried that into spring practice. You know, we're coming off harder. You know, we're very excited to play. We're really excited to get back at it.
1: Before spring ball starts, how do you keep that momentum going? Because obviously, you guys are. Everything's going well, and you probably just want to keep playing, but then you have to take a couple months off. How do you keep the momentum going internally?
3: Yeah, you just got to stay focused, you know, just stay stay grinding. Can't really forget about the task at hand. That's playing football,
1: and that's uh, coming out in Miami game and uh, putting on the show to prove to everybody who we are. So you had the opportunity to declare early for the draft this offseason, which a lot of your teammates did, but you ultimately yes, decided to come back. So can you just tell us about – making that decision to stay, and what the biggest factors were for you?
3: Um, really, you know, I feel like it was a lot of things I can improve on, you know, on the field and off the field, but especially
1: on the field because I feel like with another year under my belt, you know, I could just sharpen my tools a lot more and get a lot better. I know you also talked about the importance of graduating and how important that was to your mom. Can you talk yeah. about the role that, that that played as well?
3: Yeah, my mom really wanted me to graduate as well, so that definitely was, was a factor of me coming back, just trying to uh, – Get the best grades I possibly can, and walk across that stage.
1: Now we have something in common. We're both from Marietta, Georgia. You went to Sprayberry. I went to Walton High School, so rivals, yes, but uh, but from the same place. So I'm yes, curious sir. about your experience growing up in Marietta, Georgia, and uh, about your family.
3: I grew up in a in a single parent household until I was about eight. My mom and my stepdad. He was a basketball player, so, so that was, that was real big in the household, basketball. But in high school, my sophomore year, I was, I was talking to Coach Toomer and Coach Gresham. Those were my uh, language arts teachers. And they would always tell me, come out of a tribe spring ball. They were always just bugging me and stuff. So, you know, I got out there and I kind
1: of loved it. That's kind of uh, the main reason I'm here. So you didn't even play football until your sophomore year of high school? Yes, yeah, so the spring of my sophomore year. Wow. Were you really into basketball before that because of your stepdad? Well, my dad also played in the NBA as well. But my stepdad also, he really wanted me to play
3: basketball because that's, that's what he did. That's what his son did. So so I was a basketball player all the way
1: up until I was about 15, 16 Everything changed yeah, when I uh, got out to this spring football field. So when you got out on the field for the first time, what clicked for you? Why did you love it so much, even though you started it so late?
3: Well, my um, the time I was playing tight end, and it was this big guy. He was about six two, about three hundred pounds. He was a tackle. I came across the field on the drag route, and he laid me out. And I kind of <laughs> liked it, you know. So I had this idea that you know football was just a violent game, and they hurt and all of this, but. You know, he hit me that hard, and it didn't hurt. Me. I got up smiling, you know, talking junk. So, you know,
1: that was really it. You know, I just love the uh, physicality part of it. So, how did you become a defensive guy? Because I know, you know, you talk about basketball tight end. That's a similar. That's like an, an Antonio Gates thing going on there. How did you get yeah. to the, the defensive side of the ball?
3: Um, I guess it was just my uh, my size. Cause, but like I said, I started out playing tight end, but we was down in numbers a little bit on on the defensive side of the ball. So, so I, I started playing defense. Defensive end and tight end,
1: but I guess I was just better at the uh, defensive side of the ball. But don't get me wrong, I like tight end too. Yeah, (laughs) You'll you'll play two ways if they want you to, right? Oh, yes, for sure. (laughs) When it got time for recruiting, I mean, you hear now players are recruited when they're in 7th, 8th grade is when it starts. As late as you were in the process, what was the recruiting stage like for you? And and how did schools find out about you so late?
3: I had this guy, Bailey Sharp.
1: He he plays for Auburn right now.
3: He was one of the top offensive tackles in the country. You know, he had everybody coming out coming out to the school. He had, you know, UGA, Florida, uh, all the big-name schools coming out. And, you know, my, uh, my position coach would tell me, you know, if you put on the show, it gets him. And I started looking at him, too. So that's what I did. You know, I just started going, going hard in practice. And I guess people took notice.
1: There have been a lot of standout defensive linemen during your time at Florida. Which older guys have been the most influential to you and why?
3: Uh, probably Jordan Sherry, Brian Cox, uh, who else? John Buller. you know, those, those are just guys that, you know, did everything right. Especially Jordan. When I first got here, he was, he was one of the guys that really took me on his wing and, you know, showed me everything. Cause he, he knew I was like real raw. He'll just start to practice with me and just, just screw me up a little bit on different things that made me better.
1: Now that <clears throat> those guys you just mentioned are gone and, you know, every year it seems like there's more top defensive linemen that leave the program. How have you adjusted yeah. to being more of a leader and someone that the younger guys look up to?
3: It's honestly something new to me because I'm because I'm always so used to being, uh, I guess, I'm the quiet guy on the But you know, it's being being the oldest. You know, you got to step out your comfort zone a little bit. And lead, the guys. That's also uh, one of the main things we're trying to focus on and coming back is just leading, just being that leader that my team needs.
1: Which younger players do you feel like you've helped so far, and, and what have you done that that's made an impact on them?
3: Um, well, it's, it's a lot of um, a lot of the pass rushes. You know, whenever whenever they're rushing, you know, they'll just come back to me and they ask me, you know, um, to critique them a little bit, you know. And then that's that's another thing. You know, we have a lot of young guys that are really hungry and they actually ask for help. Cause like usually when you come in, you know, you're scared to ask for help. You just wait for somebody to to uh, try to help you. But they'll like come to you and they'll ask you, did I spin right or did I uh, what move should I? Should I work in this ridiculous, you know? But I guess uh, some of the guys, probably the main guys, probably uh, with my dear body, mm-hmm. he's going to be real good because, you know, he's, he's a very hungry uh, young player. He was always trying to get critiqued, so, so i say him.
1: You've been on campus for a long time, and you've seen a lot of things. You've done a lot of things. I'm curious, what are some of your favorite memories so far from your time on the field?
3: That's a hard
1: one. <laughs> uh,
3: I would say probably beating beating Ole Miss when they, were the, uh, when they were the number three team in the country. Mm-hmm. Or, or no, 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 I would say the LSU game.
1: That's right. Yeah, the LSU
3: game. That, that kind of put everybody on
1: notice of how good we were. It's amazing how many of your teammates I've interviewed over the last year who have all said that game as their best memory. Why is that so important to the guys on this team?
3: Well, I just feel like, you know, that was that – was, one of the top teams we played that year, you know, uh, LSU and Georgia, you know, those, those are two games that, that we really do not take lightly. You know, we look at those games, the Robinson games, you know, we look to come out and, and put on the show for those games. So when it came down to crunch time with LSU, you know, we, uh, we kind of knew it was going to win that game as well because we was ready. And, uh, we was determined. So you know, we got the job done.
1: Now in the classroom, I read that you're majoring in religion, which is pretty unique. Yeah. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that and what types of classes you take for that major?
3: Um, it's, it's a lot of interesting stuff that you wouldn't have a clue about. Some people practice some very intense religions and some interesting religions, so it's a lot of stuff.
1: So talking about some of the other sports on campus, the video went viral a couple weeks ago when the basketball team was in the SEC tournament. Andrew Nemhard hit that three, and the whole football team goes nuts inside your video room. Can you talk about the connection with other Gator athletes and what that means to you guys?
3: Well, I mean, Gators, Gators support Gators. Whenever we have uh, some, some other team or a big tournament or something, our eyes are glued to the TV. You know,
1: because we support each other. You know, we want uh, we want the best from each other. What's your favorite gator sport to attend when you have the opportunity to? Um, probably basketball because I
3: know um, I know some guys on the team, so it's just it's kind of cool. You know, having that personal relationship with them, and then and going to their game and seeing them do their thing. So. Yeah, I, I basketball.
1: have you gotten out there and shown any of those guys what you're capable of they, they might not know about what you did in the past
3: No, nah, no, nah, I'm, I'm too old, man. I'm too old. <laughs> my knees my knees done man you know I'm, I can't be running on that court like that Now, nah, y'all gotta save it for the football that's right
1: outside of football what are some things you enjoy doing when you have some time away from training and, and all the things that you have to do yeah uh, really like me I'm a,
3: I'm a guy that likes to you know play the video game you know sometimes I like to uh, get on the official with my cousins, and you know, just relax, really. But we don't have, uh, we have free time away from football, you know. I just like to relax, you know, just so caught up on the football field, you know, you can't really, you don't really have time to do a lot of things. So, so you know, when it's all over, you know, you just want to relax and just, just
1: enjoy life. What are, What are your favorite games? what What are you usually uh, What are you usually doing? Uh,
3: my favorite game right now is UFC three. Yeah, that's definitely my game. I, f- I feel like I'm I'm definitely. Been, the best on the team, but you know I feel like I'm the best on the planet at that game, man. <laughs> yeah.
1: Which uh, Which teammates do you most like to challenge when it's when it's time to game?
3: Uh, Rayside. Well, right now I'm in a feud with Rayside Jackson. He kind of he kind of running for me a little bit because <laughs> uh, we we played we played about about three months back. You know I beat him
1: like two times in a row, and I, I ain't never got my rematch. So you know, <laughs> kind of running for me a little bit, right now. <laughs> well, hopefully he hears this and he he gets back there and gives you that rematch. Uh, yeah. Couple final things for you. Just bringing it back to football. Uh, so much of spring ball is about seeing what the younger players can do because they're getting their time out there. Which yeah. young players have impressed you the most so far through spring ball? I would say uh, Mubai
3: Diabate. You know, he's done a real good job. Uh, and on the offensive side of the ball, I'd probably say Kingsley, number sixty-five. Mm-hmm. He's really impressive. You know, he's doing this thing with uh, juniors and seniors. You know, so, so that's really impressive.
1: How tough have off-season workouts been with Coach Savage? Because we hear the stories about how hard he works you guys, and obviously, you know, plays a big role in, in your physical development. But which parts of those do you dread the most? I don't know. I'll say our hardest workout is probably the, the Valentine's Day
3: lift. It's more of a mental thing because, you know, you're like the weight that you do, you're expected to fail, but you got to finish it. You know what I'm saying? Like, we'll do like, like, like probably about 16 plates you know, in total, and we'll do it for like three sets and 10. You know, the last, the last set, you get to 10, you think you're done. Cause Savage is just screaming, you know, overtime. over over time, you know, and we'll have like five, five more reps. Ooh. So, yeah, I'll definitely say this, uh, the Valentine's Lift, you know, it's more, it's more of a mental thing, really.
1: Now, is it called the Valentine's Lift because you do it on Valentine's Day?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: I guess that's like right in the middle of the off season. Is there a reason that it's that date in particular? I, I honestly don't know. But I, I really think it's because, you know, Valentine's Day, so I guess you think you got an off day,
3: but, but you know, we, uh, we want to show that we're the hardest working team in the country, so we do the hardest, the hardest workout on, or I guess, the day that you, don't, that you shouldn't be doing anything.
1: Final thing for you, Jabari, you talked about getting ready for Miami, and, and obviously it's going to be even a week earlier than expected, opening the college football season. But for yeah. the rest of spring, what do you really hope to personally take away from spring ball and then into the orange and blue game?
3: I'm really just working on the little things, you know, like, like, for instance, like run game, I'm trying to uh, get my hands better, you know, so I can get my run fit better. Uh, pass game, I'm just trying to develop, uh, more moves so I can have a bigger arsenal. But it really is just the little things. It's like when you're, uh, when you're like a junior or senior, you know, when you played a lot, you kind of, um, you kind of know what to expect on the field, you know, so, so you just got to tune up the little things,
1: you know, sharp, sharpen your tools. I heard you say 10 sacks is a goal. Is that official? Is that the number you're shooting for this year?
3: Yeah, yeah, ten, ten or eleven. Yeah, I'm trying to get double digits. To be honest with you, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I was kind of beat myself down. Cause I could have had. I was talking to uh, Coach Grantham, you know, who's watching film and stuff. And he said I could have had about eleven and twelve sets, but I just missed them, you know. So, so really, I just got to uh, dial in on technique, which is finish plays.
1: Well, we certainly wish you a lot of luck in doing that, both through the rest of the spring and then into the fall. So, Jabari, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we hope you have a great senior season. I appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Head to FloridaGators.com for info on all of this week's action, and make sure you come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.